Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. A very happy new year. It's great to be together, isn't it? It's great to worship God together. And I'm really encouraged, actually, the kind of theme that God has brought through in our time of worship this morning really chimes well with how Matthew starts his gospel and what we're going to look at today. So I really believe God is already speaking to us. He wants to continue speaking to us. So let's kind of really keep our hearts open to what he's doing with us. Today, we're going to get um, a bit of a preview of what's coming up in Matthew's gospel. We're going to be starting in chapter 4, and what Matthew does in the second half of chapter 4 is to kind of give us a coming up in Matthew's gospel statement. A bit like some TV shows you watch, they start with a little segment at the beginning which is coming up in today's episode, or coming up in this show. And you get little kind of clips and summaries, things that are meant to draw you in. They kind of whet your appetite, they get you excited about what's coming, they keep you on so you're going to watch the whole thing. And that's kind of what Matthew's doing in this chapter. The things he says get to the very core of why he's written his book, and actually the very core of the heart of the message that Jesus came to bring, the ministry, the thing that Jesus came to do. Before we dive into that chapter, let me just introduce Matthew's gospel to you a bit as well. So Matthew is one of four accounts we have in the Bible, in the New Testament, that's the second part of the Bible, of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And they're all called Gospels, because the word gospel means good news. Because what these books are telling us about is the good news of what God has done in sending Jesus. And the good news that Jesus, as we'll see today, proclaims in those books. And this particular gospel was probably written by Matthew the Apostle, hence the title, Matthew's Gospel, who was a tax collector who then followed Jesus and became one of the 12 disciples or 12 apostles. So the 12 men whom Jesus gathered close to him, who traveled with him for a number of years, learned from him, and then whom he commissioned to go and get the church kind of established after he, Jesus, had gone back to be with God the Father. That's been the kind of consistent view pretty much throughout all of church history that Matthew's the author of this book. And there are some kind of little hints in the book, so even though it doesn't explicitly say it's written by him, there are hints in there which make that quite likely. And it's probably written about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus dies and raises again in the early 30s AD, and Matthew's probably writing somewhere in the kind of mid-60s AD, about 30 years later. He's using his own experiences, his own memories of when he was with Jesus, the experiences, the eyewitness testimony of other people as well who he would have talked to. And probably by the time he's writing, he's probably also got in front of him some written sources of what was going on, people's memories of Jesus from the time. And the key reason why he's written this account, and actually the key reason why all the Gospels are written, is to tell us who Jesus is. The first question you ask when you're reading the Gospel is, what does this tell me? about who Jesus is. That's why they've been written, to help us understand who he is and what he's come to do. But then they also help us understand how do we, today, right now, respond to who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So as we go through this series, we're going to be looking at different parts of Matthew, and we're going to focus a little bit on one of his distinctives. One of the things that Matthew really wants us to understand about Jesus is that Jesus is a teacher. So Matthew records lots of Jesus' teaching, and he actually groups together bulks of Jesus' teaching into five kind of speeches interspersed throughout the gospel. And these five speeches have different themes. So the most famous one is the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about how do you live as a faithful follower of Jesus? 
But there are other speeches about mission uh, and about the future and about what the kingdom of heaven really looks like. And across the next few months, as we do this series, we're going to particularly focus in on Jesus' teaching. Not solely, we'll look at some of what he does as well. That's going to be the main bulk of what we look at. And while we do that, we also want to ask, how can what we're taught in Matthew's gospel help us as we seek to live out the vision that God has given us as a family, as King's Church? How does Matthew's gospel help us as we think about how do we build healthy church and how do we bring the kingdom of God to Hastings and to Bexhill and to the wider kind of 1066? area. So there's some of the things that we're going to be drawing out over these months as we go through Matthew's Gospel. But today, as I said, we're starting in chapter 4. We've got a Bible. You might want to turn there, starting in verse 12, where we get this preview, this coming up in Matthew's Gospel section. And let me just set this, this scene before I read that to you. So far in Matthew's Gospel, we've had the Christmas stories, the stories of Jesus' birth. And then we hear the stories about 30 years later of John the Baptist arriving. John the Baptist comes as the kind of forerunner of Jesus, a guy who comes to prepare the way and prepare people's hearts for what Jesus was going to do. And in the chapter just before this, chapter 3, we've seen Jesus go and be baptized himself by John the Baptist. And then Jesus is led off into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days by the devil. And it's at that point that we pick up the story as Jesus starts his public ministry. So let's read a bit, starting in verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew starts his account of Jesus' public ministry with Jesus moving house. He moves house from Nazareth to Capernaum. And normally, people moving house isn't a particularly big deal. Certainly, normally, it doesn't have kind of huge theological significance. But Matthew is telling us about this and actually dwelling on it a little bit because he wants us to realize that the fact that Jesus moves house is actually a really, really important thing. And Jesus has already moved around a bit in the gospel. We've got some maps that hopefully will help us. In the previous chapters, we've seen that Jesus had to flee from where he was born down to Egypt when Herod is trying to kill him. So he goes down to Egypt. You can see uh, just there, quite big on the left. They go down there to get away from King Herod, who's trying to kill Jesus. And then we're told that when uh, that's gone, when Herod has died and it's safe to go back, Jesus and his family go back and they return to Galilee, which where it says Palestine, up there we go, is at the top there in the top of Palestine. And they go to Nazareth, which you can see there on the left and the west, which is kind of in the hill country. But here, Matthew is telling us, oh sorry, no, there's a middle step. He then goes down to where you see it says the Jordan River. And that's where he's baptized by John the Baptist. And then he goes into the wilderness around the Jordan with her to be tempted by the devil. And when he goes back, after John's been arrested, we're told, he goes back up to the north to Galilee, but he doesn't go to Nazareth. He goes up to Capernaum, which you can see right there on the north coast of the Sea of Galilee. And we kind of read this and we think, well, so what? Matthew, why are you bothering to tell us there's all this moving around? Why is it important that Jesus ends up in Capernaum and starts his ministry in Capernaum? Well, Matthew describes Capernaum as being in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
Debulin and Naphtali are the names of tribes in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God's people are divided into these tribes, and each of the tribes has a patch of the promised land kind of allocated to them. So the really weird thing is that Matthew is using names for these places which haven't been used for hundreds of years. He's completely out of date. You can imagine people thinking, get with the times, Matthew. It's no longer called Zebulun and Naphtali. But actually, by doing that, Matthew's trying to get us to think back to those times. And to think about the Old Testament, to think about the backstory, he's trying to get us to see that this is really important. Then he explains to us that actually Jesus' moving house fulfills a prophecy that was given 700 years earlier by a guy called Isaiah, one of the prophets, God's mouthpieces in the Old Testament. What happens in Isaiah chapter 7 to 9 is that we see that God's people are failing to trust God to protect them and failing to live his way. And therefore, God says that what's going to happen is that the Assyrians, this big nation, are going to come in and are going to invade them. They're going to come in and destroy their cities, cart a load of them off into slavery. And that would actually be an act of judgment kind of under the hands of God. And Isaiah 8 ends by telling us that when this happens, great darkness will come upon the land. And he's not saying that when the Assyrians invade and God acts in judgment, the sun will stop shining, it will literally be dark. He's saying that what will happen will be like this spiritual darkness entering the land. Because that's the land God's given them to. It's where they're living with God, but they're going to be taken away. It's all going to be knocked down. It's all going to be destroyed. They're separated from God. The darkness they're plunged into is a picture of the separation they receive from God. But then Isaiah continues in the next chapter, and this is where Matthew quotes from, to say that although that darkness will come, God will come and bring a light back. And that light, he mentions particularly, will come to to Zebulun and Naphtali, which were the first areas that the Assyrians invaded. He's saying the light will come back and it will start in the very place where the darkness first entered the land. He's saying that though they've been separated from God, they've been plunged into this darkness because they've rebelled against him and because God has had to judge and cast them away, God will come and he will cause the light to dawn again. And the light will dawn in the very place that the darkness first entered. And so when Matthew remembers about the fact that Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and when Matthew thinks Capernaum is in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and that's where Jesus starts his public ministry, he realizes this is really significant. He realizes that in Jesus, this prophecy is being fulfilled and God is coming to bring his light back into the darkness. God is coming to undo the damage done 700 years earlier. And actually, if you know your Bible story, he's coming to undo the damage done thousands of years earlier when darkness first entered God's perfect world when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And so Isaiah, Matthew quotes from this Isaiah 9 passage saying Jesus is the one who brings the light. And that Isaiah 9 passage is actually really famous if you read on. When you go on, the passage starts to talk about a child to be born, about a son to be given, one who will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Matthew's trying to show us Jesus is that promised child. He's the wonderful one. He's the counselor. He's the everlasting father. He is the mighty God. Jesus is God come to earth. Jesus is the God man who was promised. And Isaiah 9 finishes by telling us that this child who will come, 
the mighty God child will come and will rule on the throne of David with, just, with righteousness and justice forever. He's going to come and he's going to establish a kingdom that never ends where there is always righteousness and justice, where everything is as it should be. Matthew's trying to help us see that Jesus' moving house fulfills his prophecy and shows that he is the one who brings the light of God, the God-man who comes to restore us back to God, bringing us into the light and to rule over that kingdom eternally. And so that's kind of the setting that Matthew gives us as we dive into the public ministry of Jesus. And then from the setting, Matthew moves on to give us a summary of the key message that Jesus came to bring. What was at the very, very heart of why he came and what he said to people. Verse 17, Matthew tells us, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the key message of what Jesus is doing. And what he's doing is he's announcing. That word preaching means he came announcing. He came heralding. He came reporting. I like to think of it as a bit like a news reporter today. The job of a news reporter today should be to hear what's happened and then to announce that, to report that to other people. Jesus has arrived and something has happened and he comes to announce what that something is. And the something is that the kingdom of heaven which is the same thing as the kingdom of God. It's Matthew's way of talking about the kingdom of God has come near. And it's come near in the coming of Jesus. In the coming of Jesus, God has come to earth to reclaim his position as king over all. And this is the gospel. This is the good news that's at the heart of Jesus' message, at the heart of Christianity, at the very heart of the whole Bible story, is that Jesus comes to reclaim God's position as king. Often we think of the gospel as this kind of equation of we've sinned and done wrong, but Jesus died for us, which equals our forgiveness. But that's only a part of the gospel. At its core, the gospel is the fact that in Jesus, God has reclaimed his position as the sovereign king over all things. Jesus is that Isaiah 9 child who comes to establish this eternal, perfect kingdom. And that can be kind of a confusing thing because we think, well, surely God's already king. And God's always king. We think we might read in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, the book of worship songs in the Old Testament, it often talks about God being king over all creation. He's the creator. He's the one who sustains everything. He's the one who rules everything. Of course he's king, we think. And all of that is true. But the Bible also explains to us that there's a sense in our rebellion against God, in our turning away and failing to live his way, failing to follow him, Actually, we follow other things and other people as kings rather than God. We don't acknowledge his kingship. And also what's happened in that is that evil powers have got some sway in the world. So later in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle in Colossians will talk about the fact there's a domain or a dominion of darkness. There are powers which seek to kind of push against and work against God's kingdom and that they're at work in the world around us. And the Old Testament shows us that humans fundamentally actually are incapable of living in submission to God as king because of the sin that dwells in our hearts. All of us have sinful hearts that are turned away from God, that are naturally inclined to rebel against him, and therefore we're unable to be faithful, loyal, obedient subjects to him. But Jesus comes to deal with that problem of sin. Jesus comes to deal with it, and on the cross, he does what is necessary to renew our hearts, 
to give us new life, new hearts, so that we can be obedient subjects of God the King. And on the cross, he disarms all the rulers and authorities and powers, all the evil powers that seek to kind of work against his rule and work against his kingdom. And that's exactly what the Jews, the people descended from God's Old Testament people in God's day were waiting for. They were waiting for when is God going to reclaim his position as king? And how is it going to work? The whole Old Testament story has showed us that humans can't do it. We keep getting it wrong. We keep sinning. We're unable to live God's way. They're waiting and waiting. And Matthew here is telling us the when is now and the how is in Jesus. God sends Jesus to deal with the issue of sin, which has displaced him as king. God sends Jesus so that in him he can reclaim his sovereign position as king over all. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has drawn near. It's breaking in. It's like the sun beginning to rise, like the first glimmers of dawn breaking through into the darkness. And at this point in the story, when Jesus says this, he knows that it's kind of just the start. Because actually the decisive moment in the kingdom of God, the decisive moment in history, is not actually Jesus' birth. It's not Jesus starting his public ministry. The decisive moment is Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. That is the moment in history that changes everything. That is the moment of victory when Jesus reclaims God's rightful position as king over all. And yet, even though Jesus has already decisively won that complete victory, the Bible also teaches us that we don't yet fully experience this kingdom. You might have heard we talk about it as a kingdom that's now, but is also not yet. There are bits of it that we're experiencing now, but there are bits of it that we're yet to experience. It's a bit like what happened in Jesus' death and resurrection. Is Jesus wrote and signed a load of checks. I'm going to have to change this illustration in the next few years because some people younger than me don't know what checks are. But checks, you take them to the bank and you cash them in and you can get your money. And the check guarantees that you can go to the bank and you can get that money. It guarantees that everything that is necessary for you to have that money has been done. When Jesus died and rose again, it's like he wrote a whole load of checks. He wrote them and he signed them. And some of those have already been cashed in. And so we now get to enjoy the benefits and the spiritual blessings that come from them. Some of them, God in his wisdom, has decided to keep hold of. And he's holding on to them until the final day when Jesus returns, when every last one of those checks will be cashed in, when the kingdom will come in its fullness and we will enjoy that perfection with him. So we can now enter into and living and experience something of the kingdom of God, but there are still parts that aren't yet in our grasp. We're still waiting, still longing for that sure and certain day when we do get to experience them. That means that right now we experience empowerment from God to live his way, to live as loyal subjects to God as king. But it also means that we can't be perfect in this life. We still battle with temptation in our life. It means that we can pray for people and see people who are healed, uh, people who are sick be healed. See people who are being oppressed by demons, by evil powers be set free. But it also means that sometimes we're praying it doesn't happen. We don't know why God chooses not to do it in that instance, but we know that we're living a kingdom that's right here, right now. But also there's some of it still to come. God in his wisdom knows what he's doing, and it's a now and a not yet kingdom. Ultimately, we know that some of the kingdom is still not yet because all of us will die physically unless Jesus returns. 
If you're a believer in Jesus, you can never die spiritually, but all of us will go through physical death unless Jesus returns first. And that's another sign this kingdom hasn't yet fully come, but it's on its way. And the message of Matthew, in fact, the message of Jesus in all the Gospels is this, that he has come to reclaim God's position as king, to bring this kingdom of God in. But notice that's not all Jesus says. That's not actually the first thing Jesus says here. The first thing Jesus says when he starts his public ministry, starts preaching, this heralding, this news reporting, he actually gives a command. The first thing he says is repent. He says repent because the kingdom of God is near. Because this thing is happening, this is the response, this is the action that you need to take. And that required response is summed up in that one word, repent. And repentance is something we might hear about quite a bit, and we know it's in the Bible a lot, but often we are confused about what it means, or we kind of misunderstand what it means. Repentance, we often think, means kind of being sorry and gloomy about the things that we've done and thinking we're not really doing very well at all. But repentance isn't just about feeling sorry or gloomy. Repentance is about choosing to change our minds so that we then change the way that we live. One commentator on this passage sums it up in a really helpful way. He says, Repentance is a total change of mind and heart that involves a new lifestyle as well as a new allegiance to Christ. And this is where it links in to what God was saying to us in the worst year. That's what it means to consecrate, to dedicate yourself to God, to say to God, I'm giving you my life, I'm giving you my all. We change our thinking. We change our heart so our lifestyle, the way that we live, falls into line with that. And we live as loyal subjects of God as king. We turn our back on sinful thinking and sinful behavior. We turn away from it and we choose instead to walk God's way, acknowledging his position as king and living under that. And so the big challenge to us from what uh, Jesus says here in Matthew is have we repented? Have we really made that fundamental change in our thinking, our hearts, so that our lives then reflect that and are lived in submission to God as king? Because this is the only way into the kingdom of God. Read through the Gospels. It's the only way of entering into the glorious kingdom of God is through repentance. And sometimes there might be other ways that we try or other reasons that we might try to get in. We might actually try to come in through our family connections because our spouse or our parents or whoever it might be is in the kingdom. We might just try to come in through being nice. We think if we're a nice person, of course God's going to let me into the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. It's about being a nice person. Sometimes we try to get in through other things. Sometimes we try to get in actually kind of for the wrong reasons. We try to get in actually just so that we'll be loved. We try to get in just because actually our kids love being with these other people who seem to be in the kingdom of God. Or we try to get in just because we like the sense of community we can receive. But Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is near, therefore repent. Repentance is the only way to come into the kingdom of God. But the big challenge to us actually is not just have we repented in the sense of back there in our past at some point, have we done it? The challenge to us is are we living our lives in a kind of posture of repentance? Are we always ready to recognize I've strayed off course I'm not submitting to God as king in this thing, in this area of my life. And therefore, I need to change my thinking and my heart so that my lifestyle changes and I'm living in allegiance to him. Do we think and live in such a way that in every area of our lives, we are submitted to the rule of God? And do we see in our lives the evidence of that, the fruit of that? 
When John the Baptist in the previous chapter talks about repentance, he talks about fruits of repentance. He says repent, and he says bear fruits in keeping repentance. Now, fruits are things that naturally grow from trees. And so when you repent, what will naturally happen is that how you live will change. Your lifestyle will change to match up with what God wants. The challenge to us is to look at our own lives. Is there evidence, the fruit of repentance in our lives? The answer is no. Maybe we haven't actually truly repented. And maybe today God highlights very specific things to us that he wants us to change. He wants us to repent of. And we'll see that as we go through Matthew's gospel over these months, a lot of the teaching and the stuff that Matthew brings to us from Jesus is about the kind of nitty-gritty of what does it look like to have repented and to live in submission to God as king in the kingdom of heaven. So that raises the question, though, how do we respond to Jesus as he brings this message? That's the next question that Matthew deals with in this passage. Matthew moves on to another story which illustrates to us kind of a picture of repentance in some ways and a picture of how we rightly respond to Jesus, the one who comes to proclaim the nearness of God's kingdom. Let's read it from verse 18 in chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So Jesus is walking around near his new home on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, And he sees two sets of fishermen, two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, and then James and John. And he calls them to follow him. And in the ancient world, the idea of following someone to kind of learn from them isn't unusual. People followed rabbis, Jewish leaders. People followed Greek philosophers around. But what is unusual is that in those normal cases, you would pick the person you're going to follow. You'd think, I want to follow that rabbi. I want to follow that philosopher. Jesus here is the one who calls people to follow him. Jesus calls people to follow him, calls people into the kingdom, and he not only calls them to follow him, doesn't just say, come and be with me and kind of learn from me, come and learn to imitate me. He says, come and follow me, and then come and get involved in what I'm doing. Because right there in that initial call is also a commission, a commission to get involved, a commission to be fishers of men. He's saying previously you've been fishing for fish, But now you're going to be fishing for men and for women, drawing them in, calling them into the kingdom, announcing that God's reign is breaking in and calling them to repent and to enter as well. And notice that for both sets of brothers, Matthew highlights something about the way that they respond, about the way they respond quickly and immediately. Verse 20, he tells us of Simon and Andrew, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Or verse 22, he says of James and John, immediately they left the boat and their father and they followed him. Matthew's trying to give us a good example of how we rightly respond to Jesus and to this message that Jesus is bringing. The right response to Jesus is a faith-filled following, which doesn't kind of look back longingly on our old life, on the kings, the things, the people, whatever it might be that we used to follow, we used to have our allegiances to. It turns and faithfully quickly responds and follows Jesus and submits to him. And again, not only do we follow, but we get to be involved. We become those who live under the rule of God and then who get to proclaim the coming of the rule of God and to call others to do the same. 
And that's one of the first steps we need to take in terms of building healthy church. A healthy church is made up of healthy disciples, healthy followers of Jesus. And to be a healthy follower of Jesus is to be someone who gladly and willingly gives up our old lives, gives up our old allegiances, and chooses to follow Jesus, to live in submission to him, to become like him, and then to call others as well to come and join us on that journey. That's the response that Jesus wants us to make to him, to turn away from our old lives, to follow him in submission to God's kingship. And the final thing that Matthew gives us in this little collection of stories is he gives us a kind of summary of what Jesus is going to go on to do. This is the key part of this coming up in Matthew's gospel. His summary of what's going to be the main chunk now of Matthew's gospel. And as he does that, he gives us a little insight into what this kingdom of heaven actually looks like. What does it mean for the kingdom of heaven to break into earth? What does that look like? Here's what he says from verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus travels around that whole northern part of the country in Galilee. He's teaching and preaching about the good news of the kingdom of God. He's letting people know that in him, in Jesus, God is reclaiming his position as king. But he doesn't just go around uh, talking about and announcing, reporting the coming near the kingdom of God. He goes around demonstrating it. He shows it through his actions. He goes around undoing the damage that's been done by the entry of sin into the world and the damage done by evil powers that have come into the world. He goes around healing the sick. He goes around setting people who've been oppressed by demons, by evil powers free. He's demonstrating in his actions that here, the rule, the reign of God is breaking in. And as a result, great crowds are following him as they realize this guy is the promised one who's come to reclaim God's position as king. This guy is the one through whom God is coming again to rule. That's what Jesus did. But actually, we'll see as we go through the gospel, that's also what we're to do. We're to partner with God in that thing of proclaiming the kingdom and of demonstrating the kingdom. And if we want to be people who are bringing the kingdom to Hastings and to Bexhill and to 1066 country, it involves both proclaiming, announcing to people that God is king and that he calls us to live in submission to him. But it also involves demonstrating to people, helping people see God is king and he's undoing the damage in the world. We get to go out, we get to pray for the sick and see them healed. We get to go and pray for people who've been oppressed by demons, whose lives have been marred by the influence of evil powers, and see them set free and to demonstrate that God is ruling on his throne. Can I invite the band to head back up, please? So the message of Jesus in Matthew, what we're going to see all throughout, is that in him, in Jesus, God is coming to reclaim his position as the unrivaled king over all. And Jesus tells us here that the right response to that is to repent. 
to gladly get up, to turn away from our old lives, change our thinking in our hearts, so our lifestyle comes into line with what God wants, so we live in submission to him. And that is the challenge to us. We've heard even this morning through the prophetic, that's God's challenge to us as we start this new year. God's calling us to consecrate, to dedicate our lives to him, to set ourselves apart to him, to give every part of our lives to him, to say to him, you can have my life, you can have my all. The challenge that I just feel God wants to lay before us this morning is, have we repented? Or are there still areas of our lives we've not submitted to God as king? Sometimes those are things we're aware of. We know that we're choosing not to be obedient in certain areas. Sometimes they're things we always kind of get lazy and we don't kind of realize what we're doing. But God comes and gently highlights to us, reminds us, helps us to see, and calls us to come back into line with him. Are there areas of our lives where we need to repent? Areas of our lives where we need to allow God to have his sovereign rule. Areas of our thinking and areas of our living that are not in submission to him. We're going to respond in just a moment by just having some time to worship God. And we use this time to allow the Holy Spirit to come and work in our hearts, to come and highlight to us the things that he wants us to change. And I'm in faith that God's going to come and speak to many of us really clearly this morning. It might be, as I say, it might be things you've kind of just got so immune to, you're not aware of them. But he's going to come and gently challenge us. And then, you know, he doesn't only challenge us, he also helps us. He empowers us to change and be different. And he will help us to repent. And if there's something specific this morning that you feel God challenges you on, that you need to repent of, let me encourage you to share that with a trusted friend or share that with someone in your connect group. Connect groups are meeting this week, so it's a great opportunity to kind of follow up on this. Maybe pray together, talk together, and you can walk together as you seek to change your thinking in your heart and to bring your living into line with what God wants. Can I ask you, willing and able to stand with me? I'm going to pray for us that the Holy Spirit would help us as we seek to respond to and repent. And the guys will lead us, we will give some time to do business with God. Father God, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus and that in Jesus you have reclaimed your position as the unrivaled king of all. Jesus, thank you for willingly coming, for following the Father's plan, for living, for dying, for being resurrected for us to become the one who reclaims God's position as king. And we say that we acknowledge that you are king over all. And we want to come into line with that. We want to respond rightly. We want to repent. We say where there are areas of our lives where we're not living in submission to you, we want to turn away and turn towards you and submit to you. And I was right now, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you move all across this room? I pray every heart, would you come and reveal to us the areas of our lives where we're not living in submission to you? The things we're aware of, the things we're not aware of. Come, I pray, with your gentle prompting. Help us to see where we need to change. And then, Holy Spirit, I pray, give us the strength and the power and the courage to make those choices and to change our thinking, our hearts, and then to have our lives changed in response. Holy Spirit, we say, would you come and do your work? We want to consecrate ourselves to you. We want to be totally and utterly set apart and dedicated to you. We acknowledge your kingship and we choose to live under it. We ask right now, Holy Spirit, come and help us to do that as we worship you now. Amen.